you've got people in the 19th century, especially women, who are born into privilege and then marry their way into more privilege. I think if she was in that sector, in that trajectory, people wouldn't have the problem with her that they had contemporary-wise and then why she was semi-forgotten now. This happens to women all the time. The fact that she's, you know, born in Rhode Island, we don't have a lot of concrete evidence of what her life was like before she shows up in New York. Is her mom running a brothel? Is her mom running a tavern? The verbiage is very cloudy because of just 19th century language. Comes to New York as a young woman, becomes an actress, which in the 19th century in New York also has certain ways of coding the term actress. She probably was also a courtesan. We know she becomes Stephen Jamel's mistress. That's recorded. She's already got this sketchy background, so anyone is going to know that. Welcome to episode two of Beyond Burning Gotham. My name is James Scully. These episodes are the history compendium for the preceding Burning Gotham chapters. They'll help paint the picture on what was really going on in 1835. Our characters live in a New York that's rapidly becoming the most important city in the Western world. In this episode, we'll focus on New York immigration, disorder, and the richest woman in America. Burning Gotham Chapter 3 is called Eliza Jumel. Have you been to see Father? No, and I don't intend to. Mr. Hamilton has advised me against it. You still love him. That doesn't change what he is. A man? A liar, an embezzler, and an atheist. Who among the rich in this city isn't? Well, I'm having my land uptown reappraised. Let's ensure the aqueduct blows past as intended. I had never heard of Morris Jamel. I had never heard of Eliza Jamel. The house just seemed really interesting when I applied for the job. I was hired there as director of education and public programs because I had gotten into art history, which was kind of the macro level. And then when I figured out what I wanted to do in museums, it was museum education and public programming. Looked up the history of the house, found where it was, went on the interview, and that was probably the first time I heard her name. I hadn't heard of her before that. This is Carol Ward. She's the former executive director of the Mars Jamel Mansion and current executive director of the Lexington Historical Society. Carol worked for the mansion for nearly a decade. I love her on so many levels. And interestingly, when I went on that interview and when I first started at the mansion, people didn't talk about her a lot. So I remind people that I was at the mansion for 10 years. I went through director of education, deputy director, then executive director, and when I started, the house was really Revolutionary War-based, George Washington, and then a little bit 19th century, and talking about her mainly through the lens of she lived there the longest, she had the two husbands, she was married to Aaron Burr, but there was not a lot of conversation about her because she had gotten such a bad rap. And so a lot of people didn't want to talk about her mysterious past. Did she potentially kill her first husband? 
So the former executive director and then the kind of guide staff that was there really honed in on George Washington, Battle of Harlem Heights, the 18th century history of the house, which I came to learn throughout my tenure there, the collection wasn't really 18th century based. And so that was one of the main things when I became director in 2013 to really boost Eliza Jamel up. The mansion is located at 65 Jamel Terrace near St. Nicholas Avenue and 160th Street in Washington Heights, Manhattan. It was built in 1765 by Roger Mars, but its most famous owner lived in the house during the first half of the 19th century. Her name was Eliza Bowen Jumel. The daughter of a sailor, she was born in Providence, Rhode Island on April 2nd, 1775. Her early childhood was spent living in brothels and workhouses. Her father died in 1786. Her mother Phoebe married an itinerant cobbler and they moved from town to town in New England before settling in North Carolina. But her mother and stepfather died in a yellow fever epidemic in 1798. At 23, Eliza moved to New York, finding work in the theater. It was there she met New York's wealthiest men. You know, the 19th century was very hard on women because you were either what people called the angel of the house, which was pure, chaste as the driven snow woman, who you know does all your wifely, motherly duties, or you were the femme fatale and you were the fallen woman. And for most people, Eliza fell into the femme fatale category. We don't exactly know where she came from. She was the actress, she was the courtesan, moving up the social ladder, not knowing her place. Eliza became mistress to a French merchant named Stephen Jumel. They were eventually married on April 9th, 1804. There's a great story that supposedly she fakes being super sick to get Stephen to marry her. And, you know, she's on her kind of fainting couch and marry me and make me an honest woman before I pass away. He buys into it, marries her, and then she springs up and says, oh my gosh, it's a miracle, I'm all better. So did she catch him in the marriage? Is that the true story? Who knows? Eliza's sister joined her in New York, marrying and giving birth to a daughter in 1808. Two years later, Stephen and Eliza purchased the mansion in Washington Heights. In 1815, Eliza and Stephen traveled to Paris, linking themselves to Bonaparte sympathizers. Eliza was supposedly thrown out for openly flying a Napoleonic flag from her carriage. By 1826, with Stephen spending time away from New York, Eliza had power of attorney over the estate. She becomes his business partner, triples the amount of land that they have around the mansion, furnishes the house in Duncan Five Furniture, French custom wallpaper. She is one of the first collectors of old master paintings in New York and the country. She is managing his business. And then, yes, he dies in a sort of mysterious way. She inherits everything. And then later on, marries Aaron Burr for his kind of title. We know he marries her for her money and then gets to divorce him because she does have power of attorney over her own estate. And in a weird twist of fate, it's Alexander Hamilton's son, who's her divorce attorney, which I just love that as karma for Burr. In 1832, a carriage accident took Stephen's life. Eliza became one of the country's richest women. Just the idea of this singular woman maneuvering 
it's like she's presented with a new series of obstacles almost throughout her whole life that she manages to negotiate past. This is Greg Young. Greg's been co-host of the Bowery Boys podcast since 2007. He and Tom Myers' show has been such a success that it spawned spin-offs, live performances, walking tours, and an acclaimed book, The Bowery Boys' Adventures in Old New York, that's a must-read for all New York City history aficionados. I asked Greg about his research into the life and times of Eliza Jumel. In a sense, she's more successful because her life was mostly before the real rise of like the New York elite, the New York upper class here in like the 1830s and 40s, which is why she was looked down upon. She had garnered her own power, her own wealth. She knew how to manage her own wealth in a world of men. You do have women by the 1830s and 40s, they're negotiating their own path, but it's in this idea of like social class and wealth. It's very role-based. I mean, those women also had power and they negotiated and used the tools that they had to kind of keep ahead. But you see why they look down on someone like Eliza Jumel, who had a very tragic past. I mean, what's really interesting actually is this whole debate about, well, was she like a prostitute? Those rumors vexed her her whole life as a way to tarnish her, but she did grow up in a brothel I don't think it's been like proven that this is what her life was at this time, but it kind of didn't matter because by the time of the start of the 19th century, these were rumors that circulated about her. And by the way, like she's the example that we know because she was married to Aaron Burr, because she did sort of distinguish herself and her house is preserved. So we get to look at her story and find it more fascinating. But there were a lot of women during this period that kind of forged their own path because they had to out of necessity. It's very hard to be a woman without means. If you don't have means, then you better have the smarts to be able to use your position, use your wiles, use your sex, use your ingenuity, use your charm. You have to use all of these different things to come out ahead or else you're going to end up in the poorhouse because there are no social services. So, I mean, it's a truly dire situation and incredible to think that Elijah Jamal, like, ruled the roost and was a genius financial whiz at this time and, you know, sort of ruled an area of town that was really sparsely developed. Also, she, she kind of had her own kingdom. She married Aaron Burr in 1833 in the parlor of the mansion. They separated when she found out Burr was not only cheating, but spending her fortune on reckless business deals. And even though, again, she would be in those parties with the Astors and with the Hamiltons and, and all that, she wanted to be invited to everyone's party, wanted to be accepted by that society, right? We all want to be accepted by the powers that be. And she's climbed up the ladder. She's got this money. She's got this power with both Stephen Jamel and with Aaron Burr. And I think people probably snubbed her at those parties. People probably were like, well, we want to come to the party at the Jamel mansion because it's got all this amazing furniture and art. And she throws these cool parties and they're not going to talk to her when they get there. Look outside the carriage, Aaron. Rags and riches together. Memories are short in New York. If you don't make a fortune, someone else will. And that person will do so with a more positive attitude. One of the great stories that I tell about Eliza is there's a 12 Years a Slave connection to the mansion because Eliza also had a house up in Saratoga Springs 
Solomon Northrup's wife, Anne, was a chef actually in, I believe it was a hotel in Saratoga Springs. Eliza knew her through the connection in Saratoga. And when Solomon was kidnapped back into slavery in the South, Eliza basically took Anne and the family in at the mansion and Anne became her chef at the mansion. So it's things like that where you're like, okay, she's really kind of giving and caring and all that, but she was really interested in money. She was a land baron. She bought parcels of land in lower Manhattan to make sure that she controlled as much land as possible. She did have herself painted to look younger as most people did back then. She took care of her niece. She had a, a huge relationship with both her grandchildren and the big painting that's in the front foyer of the mansion is her with her two grandchildren. She took them on the grand tour, but then the kind of apocryphal story of that painting is her grandson comes and asks her to like approve the girl that he wants to get married to. She doesn't like the girl, so she disinherits her grandson, puts a black cloth over that portion of the painting, never talks to him again in her lifetime, and then the two grandchildren fight over the estate, and it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. By 1835, Eliza was 60, still considered beautiful, and begrudgingly accepted as one of the shrewdest people in New York. We'll have to stop the story here, though. Eliza wouldn't want us to give too much away just yet. The mansion? It's very much open to the public. For more info on visiting hours and programming, go to morrisjumel.org. I'll have a link in the show notes. Incidentally, if you really like Eliza, well, <laughs> uh, there's a rumor that her ghost still frequents the mansion. We'll have some of those stories in the Patreon feed at patreon.com slash burninggotham. You'll have to run the steer by the table. I'll just rip off what I want. <laughs> this is the Jacksonian period in American history you have really the growth of the sort of working class, buy your bootstraps sort of people who really had to fight for their rights because New York still was somewhat of a patrician city when how it was run. And you really have the growth of things like Tammany Hall and others fighting for the rights for the working class. And it wasn't altruistic, of course, on their part. They did it because they knew they could get their votes. Where have you been for five hours? You left me with those banshees. I've been to the docks. The diamonds will be late. What? How late? I don't know. The news is from March 27th. They're aboard the USS Constitution, and get this, Minister Livingston is on board too. A man is a thorn in the side of free commerce. This is Daniel Levy. You have all this immigration coming in, which is creating this period of tension between the nativists, which are those we hear first, which were generally the British and Scottish who had settled here beforehand, and the Irish immigrants and others, and you have Germans and Italians who were coming in. And they were flowing into this area, and this created lots of tension between the 
immigrants and the nativists, but also between the sort of haves and the have-nots. If you're listening to this episode, you'd be a fan of Daniel's book, Manhattan Phoenix, The Great Fire of 1835 and the Emergence of Modern New York. You have areas like the Five Points, which is developing and becoming very crowded. Five Points is where Chinatown is now. It was called the Five Points because you have actually five different streets that met up at this point and created five different points. It was quite poor. There were lots of immigrants there. You have blacks, you have Irish, a lot of poverty. You have a lot of industry in the area too. And it was very unappealing area because it was actually built above a pond called the Collect and Marshes because they had drained this area to try to develop it. You still had water flowing underground. It was unhealthy. You have lots of, you know, just fumes, what have you, from rotting vegetables. So it wasn't really the most eligible area for people to move to. He and Glenn Umberger are great at visualizing the experience of walking around Manhattan in 1835. It's also helpful to remember at this time, or, you know, even now, Manhattan is an island. In 1830s, Manhattan was even smaller than it is today because of subsequent landfills over the last you know, 200 years. Taking a walk along Pearl Street in the 1830s, you're really packed in like sardines. And it's not just, you know, people traffic, it's horses, very congested, very crowded, not a lot of personal space to maneuver around. You're right there almost on the East River itself. So ships coming in. It was an era of discontent. There were cholera epidemics, union strikes, and violent riots. It's almost like there is no law. There are social norms that are happening, but the law is certainly protecting those in the kind of upper spheres of these places. And it's not that there aren't well-meaning people who want there to be a law-abiding force, but the city's about to grow too quickly. It's about to become untethered. And it's going to be that way for decades. And that's what's interesting is when you see something, especially in the 1830s and 40s, where they have no idea what's coming. And you can just thank them for developing these things like the Croton Aqueduct, which, of course, then they had to kind of rebuild in the 90s because it was inadequate. But, like, imagine if they dragged their feet any further. I mean, in a way, the Great Fire was a blessing in disguise because that really forced their hand. I mean, they had already voted on it. This was like, oh, no, we actually need to get serious about this. This is a top priority building this because let's not even talk about cholera and all the other diseases that are spreading because there's no proper water source. It's just fascinating looking back at this era and seeing that what they're dealing with is like no city is dealing with the same kind of pressures and crises. And little do they know that they're all about to get worse exponentially throughout the rest of the century. Speak for yourself, Lawrence! It's your time and policies that are causing all the union strife! And you should be in Albany, Lee! Oh, please, Clark! Please, Clark! It's the global trade union that's causing all the agitation! Don't be surprised if the stonecutters are back on strike soon! What do you think John Jacob Astor will say to that? It was the stonecutter riot. People were worrying about their work being taken away. These were stonecutters who were upset when they realized NYU, New York University, started building its campus on Washington Square. You have main building, which was going up on the east side of the square. And the fellow who was supplying the stone, instead of hiring stonecutters from New York, decided to do it more cheaply and get prison labor from up at Sing Sing. And 
the stonecutters were quite upset and they marched up and they damaged his yard and what have you. You see some early signs of this sort of Irish nativist tension going on. The Irish were not only afraid of because of work, because you have a lot of Irish who were coming in who were taking jobs, but also there was this real sort of Protestant Catholic tension at this point, a sort of anti-papist sentiment going around. But at the same time, you also have below the upper class people dealing with newly arriving Irish immigrants. And so then you have another way, a very dark way of looking at themselves as Americans, as the quote, Native Americans, as those people that like, well, we've been here a couple generations, so we deserve to be here. And this is our country. A lot of the strife and violence that would occur really does so because of this idea of like defending your Americanness in an era where America is not even like 75 years old yet. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of extraordinary when you even look a little bit later at the Astor Place riots, which are 1849. That really is about, it's almost like a little version of the Revolutionary War where you're British and we're American and, you know, we, we deserve to stay here and you're beneath us. So I think all of that is playing out in different ways on different class levels, but that's at the core of all of it, I think. Jeff Broxmeyer explained how Tammany Hall benefited from this disorder. One of the tensions in Tammany specifically is that it bases its myth and legend off of this indigenous chief Tamman who supposedly helped the settlers in like around Pennsylvania. All of this iconography gets wound into the actual rituals of Tammany Hall. They call the building the wigwam, their outfits where they dress up as indigenous people. They call their members braves and things like that. But because Tammany becomes so wound up in the Jacksonian coalition, which is a coalition of Southern slave politics, plantation owners and those who want to expand the country westward with new lands. That's the coalition of kind of urban Democrats like Tammany in the North and then in the South. The tension is that pretty clearly Tammany is very much in favor of the dispossession of indigenous peoples as the country is moving westward. And so they've adopted all of these accoutrements of indigeneity, but they're in favor of indigenous dispossession and also very much in favor of the advance of slavery. The main debates that take place in Tammany Hall in the antebellum period, starting in the 1830s, are over the speed and pace of how quickly this should happen. So what's to be done when a city's controlling political party pushes forth such hypocritical energy? Well, in the case of burning Gotham, it'll take the combined efforts of the richest man in America and the country's most famous author to offset this delicate balance of power. But don't take my word for it. Tune into Burning Gotham Chapter 5. It'll be available beginning Sunday, December 11th, 2022. Thank you for tuning into Episode 2 of Beyond Burning Gotham. New Burning Gotham chapters come out Sundays and Tuesdays, and these history episodes drop on Fridays. Special thank you to Carol Ward, 
Daniel Levy, Glenn Umberger, Greg Young, and Jeff Broxmeyer. They provided detailed insights on Eliza Jumel and New York in 1835. Our music comes courtesy of the Itinerant Band. For more info, please visit itinerantband.com. To support the show for as little as two bucks a month, please go to patreon.com slash burninggotham. My name is James Scully. This has been Episode 2 of Beyond Burning Gotham, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.